I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Arizona this week. Arizona. I learned so much about Arizona this week that I did not realize about Arizona. That's awesome. Yeah, I know like I know Arizona from from what I see in my head because I've never been there. And to me, it's like one of those really cool deserty places. Like I always wanted to go to either Arizona or New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Gonna make it happen someday. I've also never been to Arizona, although I did have some friends who lived in Arizona for quite a while and they they enjoyed it. And it's also the birthplace of that trash bag, Eleanor Shellstrop. <laughs> That's right, it is. Oh, Eleanor. I love I love when she's just like, well, I'm from Arizona and Jason's from Florida, so obviously we're garbage. <laughs> the Good Place was such a good show. It was. I was sad when it ended, but I think it ended well. It did. It was definitely its time. Although it was funny with the ending because I'm like, wait a minute. So purgatory, you just invented purgatory. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, let's learn more about Eleanor's home state, shall we? We should. Uh, This next tidbit kind of surprised me, but apparently Arizona is the sixth largest state in the U.S. And it's also the 14th most populous. I can see that. Yeah. I think when I thought about it a little bit more, considering what a large city Phoenix is, it makes a lot of sense. The state nicknames for Arizona are the Grand Canyon State, because it's where the Grand Canyon is, the Copper State, because it leads the country in copper production, and the Valentine State. Huh. Yeah, Valentine State, not because people are romantic, but because it was admitted into the Union on February 14th, 1912. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, it was the last state added to the Union in the contiguous 48 states. I did not know that. I know, right? I was like, oh, Arizona, who knew? Not me. Let's see, what else about Arizona? Well, obviously, it's a pretty hot state. When mm-hmm. I think of Arizona, and I think you do too, Eden, it's it's a desert, right? Yes. Well, the climate does vary a little bit because of the topography. Of course, it's always cooler and colder in the mountains. But overall, Arizona is pretty much a desert climate with really hot summers and more mild, warm winters. Uh, And thanks to the invention of air conditioning and its widening availability after World War II, the state saw a population boom. Between 1940 and 1960, the number of residents in Arizona tripled. Wow. I know, crazy, right? Modern convenience. Uh, This next set of facts I thought was really cool. Again, something I was not aware of about Arizona. Arizona is home to 22 Native American tribes with a history that spans back as far as 12,000 years ago. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. I guess I always think of Oklahoma as like primarily the heart of Native American country in the U.S., but I was wrong. Arizona. A lot of the Oklahoma thing is due to that's where people got moved from and given like reservations. As part of like the Trail of Tears, right? Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because that's where like, like I said, I'm part Lenape and... The Lenape people were where I'm from in Easton, Pennsylvania, and then they all got moved out to Oklahoma. Interesting. Interesting. Hooray. What I didn't know, because I didn't know that history, of course, about the Trail of Tears, but Arizona actually has more Native American land than any other U.S. state. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. 83% of Arizona is made up of reservations, forests, and public land. Hmm. 
A part of that land includes the largest Native American reservation in the U.S., the reservation of the Navajo Nation, which covers yep. 27,000 square acres of Arizona and also neighboring Utah and New Mexico. I didn't know how big it was, but I knew it was like big Navajo country out there. Yeah, it's so big. It's actually larger than 10 of the U.S.'s states. Wow. The thing that I was like surprised about um, was I didn't know there was a huge Native American population in North Carolina. I don't think about like Southern states as being like a huge Native American population, you know, but I learned that when working for an insurance company that I used to work for. And it's funny because they had like special like tribal member insurance and they're like, oh, you're going to get tons of calls from like the tribal elders and all this stuff like that. And here they have special benefits. Learn all of this. I never got a single call like that ever. <laughs> um, going back to the Navajo Nation, the Navajo Nation's Arizona Territory is also home to the first ever college established by and for the Native American community. The facility was founded in 1968 as the Navajo Community College and is presently known as Diné College. I might be mispronouncing that name. Uh, the Navajo language is actually the third most spoken language in Arizona after English and Spanish. Okay, I can see it. Yeah. What else is unique about Arizona? Well, it was home to the world's very first retirement community. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of yeah. sunbirds, snowbirds, sunbirds. I forget what they're called. Snowbirds, I think. Perhaps. They I know. Migrate in the winter, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes way more sense. I know a lot of people retire to Florida, but apparently Arizona is also a retirement yep. hotspot. Arizona and Florida are the two big ones that I think of when I think of people retiring because a lot of people want to go to Florida, but then, you know, that whole it's a dry heat thing <laughs> makes people go to Arizona when I'm sorry, 106 is still 106 and you still mm -hmm. going to die. Yes, yes. But luckily they have air conditioning. Yes. Thank God for that. <laughs> so the first retirement community in the world is... Sun City, and it was built by developer Del Webb just northwest of Phoenix, Arizona. It opened on New Year's Day in 1960 and had more than 100,000 visitors pour in to see the novel concept, which included five model homes, a recreation center, a shopping plaza, and of course, a golf course. Sun City expanded quickly and today is home to over 40,000 residents, all of them age 55 or above. Okay, makes sense to me. Uh, Arizona is one of only two states, the other one being Hawaii, that does not observe daylight savings time. I knew that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Hawaii didn't, though, but I can see that. But I knew Arizona was like the one in the continental United States that didn't. Was it from those maps that you would see as a kid that had like the stripies in Arizona? I think for, like, so. I think <laughs> for like time zones? It. When you were learning about time zones, yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, I guess residents in Arizona decided to to turn their clocks back permanently after the passage of the Uniform Time Act in 1966. But they hated the passage, they hated the extra hour of sunlight so much because Arizona's hot as balls that yeah. they got legislators to pass an exception bill. Uh, while this move is pretty popular among folks who live in Arizona, it's worth noting that not everybody follows the daylight savings time, not observation of the state. The Navajo Nation does observe daylight savings time. 
weird. That is super weird because it's Isn't like it? in the same state. <laughs> yes. And you make up a big ass chunk of that state. Yeah, that so. makes it even more confusing because, I mean, like, <laughs> I applaud them for not doing daylight savings time because it sucks, honestly. For anyone's sleep schedule, it is horrible. I like it in the fall a little bit, but not in the spring. And, um, yeah, but then it's already confusing enough with them not observing it. But then to have some observe it and some not, that's real mm-hmm. weird. And also, too, I realize sometimes when people talk about reservation time, they're not being bigoted assholes. It's legit a thing. It's a thing. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Wow. Learn something new. Yeah. <laughs> and my last fun fact about the great state of Arizona is about Arizona's very special relationship with one of the fast food giants. So oh. Arizona and McDonald's have a very unique relationship. Do they now? Mm-hmm. The very first McDonald's drive-thru was created in Arizona. Huh, okay. Yep. Way back in 1975 in Sierra Vista, Arizona, McDonald's tried its first drive-thru and it was so successful that the drive-thru wave spread across the country and yes, the world. Way to be trendsetters, Arizona. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then also because of its unique relationship with McDonald's, there's only one McDonald's in the entire world that has turquoise arches. And that is in Arizona. Wow. Okay. Officials in Sedona, Arizona, thought that the yellow of the golden arches clashed a little too much with the natural red rock that surrounds the city and is very prominently used in buildings in the city. So they asked McDonald's, hey, can we jazz this up a little bit and just use turquoise arches? And McDonald's said, sure. And it's pretty cool looking, but but a little bit trippy. It almost looks like a weird Photoshop that someone did on the internet if you look up Sedona, Arizona, turquoise McDonald's arches. I think um, I may have yeah. come across it by accident once and been like, now who has the time and why would someone Photoshop <laughs> this? But now I know that it's real. Yep, yep. So those are my fun facts for Arizona. I liked them. They were interesting. Thank you. Thank you. I hope your uh, true crime story is equally as interesting, if not more scandalous than my my silly fun facts about Arizona's special relationship with McDonald's. Oh, it is. It's way more scandalous than anything McDonald's can throw at us. <laughs> um, but yes, I will jump in to my story. So my story for this week takes place in Mesa, Arizona. Honestly, I was trying to find something good in Tucson just so I could make some sort of Romeo Michelle joke. But <laughs> that didn't happen, which might be for the best since spelling Tucson is a nightmare for me. I always want to put the S before the C, and it's the C before the S. But shouting, Tucson, here we come, is the best way to start any road trip. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Any Hooters. Mesa is in Maricopa County and is home to a population of 504,258 people, which Wikipedia assures me makes it more populous than Miami, St. Louis, and Minneapolis. So there are a lot of people living here. Wow. That is a lot of people. Yeah. That's why I believed you when you said it was like the third populace or whatever you said about the states or something. Now I don't remember. 14th. 14th most populous. There we go. See see how little I listen to you, Nicole. (laughs) It's okay. I'm used to it. (laughs) It's also the largest city in the United States without a downtown Hmm. and the third largest city in Arizona. Weird. I wonder how... Without a downtown. Without a downtown. Yeah. I know I did kind of a double take. (laughs) 
Sounds very spread out. Yes. This area dates all the way back to the Hohokam people about 2,000 years ago. So it's filled with history. But don't ask me about the Hohokam people because apparently people are still debating who they actually even were. But we do know they built the canal system in the area, which is pretty awesome. The original town site we know as Mesa was registered in 1878 and was only a square mile in area. It has majorly expanded since its early days and is now 139.42 square miles. Wow. Yep. Very spread out. Yeah. If you're looking for something to do in the area, as I have mentioned, there is no downtown, so Petula Clark would not have a good time here. (laughs) Where would you go? I don't know. (laughs) But there is a lot of other fun stuff, so maybe she could manage. So you can get your walk on at the Papago Park, which boasts many hiking trails with great views, as well as a zoo, so you can visit your animal friends and get a workout all at the same time. Okay, I'm into that. Looking at animals, having nice, healthy walks. All right, that sounds fun. And once you're done exercising your body, you can flex your most important muscle, even though it isn't actually a muscle, your brain. That is not where I thought that statement would go, but okay. Exactly. Yes. So totally not a muscle, but guess what? We're rolling with it. So what I mean is that you can go check out the Arizona Museum of Natural History, where you can check out a ton of dinosaurs. And judging from the picture on Google, you can do that even before you get in, as they have a little guy breaking through the wall to the outside. Fun. If you have kids, they'll probably love this place, and they can even pan for gold here. What? Yep. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. It does. There's also some good family fun to be had, as well as some good produce at Schneff Farm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because it's spelled all kinds of fucked up, but we're going to roll with it. And that is in nearby Queen Creek. Schneff just sounds fun to say. Schneff is fun to say? Yeah, Yeah. Schneff just sounds fun to say. It was really annoying to spell. (laughs) (laughs) Not only can you pick some delicious peaches... But you can also ride roller coasters and other rides and also go camping or, as their website says, glamping. Ooh. All in all, Mesa sounds like a pretty fun spot, although the subject of today's story might think otherwise. And no, it's not Petula Clark. (laughs) This is the story of Travis Alexander. Hmm. Okay, I'm excited to learn more about Travis Alexander. You don't know how often I almost typed Jason Alexander. (laughs) As in the guy from Seinfeld. Or the guy that we all thought was the guy from Seinfeld, but turned out to be one of Britney's childhood friends whom she married. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I bet she did, too. When I saw in the paper that she had married um, Jason Alexander, I was like, the guy from Seinfeld? Really? You're like, that's a weird love match, but okay, Britney, you do you. (laughs) Yeah, go for it, Britney. Uh, Anyway, Travis Alexander was born on July 28, 1977, to parents Gary and Elizabeth Alexander in Riverside, California. He only lived with them, however, for a decade or so. When he was 10 or 11, he moved in with his paternal grandparents instead, running away from home. According to the book Our Friend Travis by Chris and Sky Hughes, this was because he had a very unfortunate home life. The book said... His parents were both addicted to drugs and were abusive. And keep in mind, Travis was not their only child. They had seven other children. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So nine years later, when his father died in 1997, his seven siblings also ended up moving in with the grandparents. So I hope the grandparents had like a huge house or maybe a hotel or something. Because that's a lot of people under one roof. It is. All of them speak really well about the grandparents. Like, our grandmother was an angel. She was perfect. So that's kind of cool. Apparently, like, they survived off of, like, instant noodles and there was never a lot of food with the parents. Because I guess they were too busy, you know, doing drugs. Um, But there was always, like, good meals and, you know, proper nutrition with their grandparents. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's good. His mother was still alive at this point. Uh, She passed away in 2005, but I guess like the other kids just didn't want to deal with living at home either. It was also reported that Travis was the victim of bullying in his childhood years and didn't have very many friends. Things did start to get better after moving in with his grandparents, though. Like I said, you know, finally had food, which was good. Um, He started getting involved in their church and met a lot of nice people there, and he started to feel like he belonged somewhere, which is good because I know how all this ends, and I know how it began, so I'm hoping that there's at least a little happiness in between. As far as the church goes, it was the LDS Church, a.k.a. Mormons, and he was a missionary for them and even became a church elder. I don't know how that works because Mormons usually don't talk to me because, you know, the whole gay thing. But oh well. So I know a little bit about how that works because of world religion class. <laughs> oh, fun. We never had one of those. That was called make-believe, and we did not learn it in school. <laughs> yeah, part of it is it's very much sort of uh, to become a full member of the church, you go on a mission, and it's you basically fulfilling some of the tenets laid out to be a good Mormon. Um, men and boys uh, take on the priesthood and part of taking on the priesthood is becoming an elder which means you like have fully accepted and are considered a full member of the mormon church and then that's when you go on your mission okay that's cool mm-hmm. interesting so he did become rather successful as an adult however and he was a salesman as well as a motivational speaker The company he worked for was called PPL, or Prepaid Legal Services. From what I could find on them, it seems like they're like an MLM type of deal, offering legal services and like uh, insurance and identity theft monitoring, monitoring. It also said something about reimbursement after selecting your own lawyer, but all of it was just like really confusing. Okay. So I kind of gave up halfway through. (laughs) You're like, glad glad you're not in legal trouble because I don't understand any of this. Exactly. So all I know is that I cannot stand MLMs because I'm also not pushy enough for sales. But it just makes me think Travis must have been a great salesperson if he made money doing this because I never did. It's kind of like selling cars, right? It's like some people are really good at selling cars because they just know how to close a sale. I am not one of those people. No, exactly. Yeah. Great customer service. Not great with sales. I always hated upselling, too, when mm-hmm. we had to do that for customer service things. I'm like, no, it feels real shady. I know. When someone says upsell to me, I immediately go, ugh, and like shudder on me, deeply on the inside. Exactly. Do you ever see Ghost World? Ugh, did I ever see Ghost World? Come okay, on good. now. I mean, I know you, and I know you'd love it, <laughs> so if you didn't, you should, but you've seen it. Okay. 
when they tell her about upselling at the movie theater and the guy's like, can Ugh. I have a medium soda? And she's like, medium? Sir, don't you know that medium is for suckers? Like, <laughs> who don't understand the concept of value? The perfect upsell. Exactly. I love it. Uh, so this company has actually come under fire before um, for the fact that they make salespeople purchase training materials. But I think that's pretty standard for multi-level marketing. Mm. You always have to like buy before you can sell, you know? Yeah, you have to uh, startup cost. There's always a startup cost. Exactly. And it's normally hundreds of bucks. And then you never get it back because if you're like me, you don't sell anything. And then you eat your free samples. <laughs> <laughs> It may or may not be Dove chocolate. We don't. We're not going to speculate <laughs> right now. So in 2006, he met a woman in Las Vegas, Nevada at a conference for prepaid legal. Her name was Jody Arias. Uh-oh. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name right, but we're going to go with it. So let me stop right there for a moment and tell you a few things about Jody. Jody was born July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California. She was a high school dropout, and she had these big dreams of becoming a photographer, which never really panned out for her. Although her photos would meet much critical acclaim at some point, but we will talk about that later. Prior to meeting Travis, she had been seeing this guy named Daryl Brewer for a few years, but that hadn't really worked out for Jody. And I believe they were still together when she met Travis, but don't quote me on that because everything was kind of sketch about timelines. Okay. She and Daryl didn't really want the same things in life. Jody wanted the white picket fence and the beautiful house and, of course, marriage. However, Daryl had already been married and divorced and didn't really want to go through that again. Personally, I can absolutely see things from Daryl's perspective here. I've been married and I've been divorced, and it sucks. I'm not necessarily wanting to walk down the aisle again anytime soon myself. Not saying that I'm never getting married again. But once you've done it and failed at it, you realize it's not the be-all, end-all that you think it is growing up. There's no happily ever after, and he was aware of this. That wasn't all that made them a bad fit, though. Daryl also had kids from his previous marriage, and he wanted to stay close by, and he made them his top priority. And Jody wanted to be top priority, which I think we can also understand at some point. He was 20 years her senior and had been her manager at a restaurant she was working in, and that's how they met, which is always kind of sketchy, if you ask me. Oh, that's What's super, that? super fucking sketchy. Exactly. What's that? No no one asked me? Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> she and Daryl had been living together in this house that they had purchased, and she was actually working two jobs as a server to cover her half of the mortgage, which is never fun. Mm-mm. Gosh, that sounds really, really tiring. Rough, yeah. So with all these things just not seeming to work out for Jody, she decides to listen to a friend who told her she should look into working for prepaid legal, which brings us to the convention she was also at. I wonder if her friend also worked for prepaid legal. <laughs> Probably, because I'm, then, then you can be one of the people under them, and it goes from there. Gotta build that upline. Oh, pyramid schemes, how we Downline? I get confused. <laughs> I don't know the terms. I just know that it's a cult, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they met in a place called the Rainforest Cafe, and they ended up going to dinner together for, like, a dinner for high earners for PPL. Okay. 
According to the book that I mentioned earlier, the two really hit it off, and Travis even said he could see himself marrying Jody. Like oh it was my. like that instant. That is definitely a change in direction for Jody. Yeah. So Jody seemed to feel pretty strongly about Travis as well because three months into their relationship, she converted to Mormonism for him. Wow. Yeah. But here's also the thing with Jody. One of my sources said that she had borderline personality disorder and would just try out new identities all the time. So who knows? They're like, one time she was goth, another time she was this. Like, you know, so I don't know. Anyway, Travis was now living in Mesa, and Jody was still living in California, so they did a long-distance thing for a while. Okay. It gets a little complicated here because Travis was 29 years old, and in the Mormon church, they strongly recommend getting married before age 30. Now, with these strong moral beliefs that Travis had, he wanted to marry someone who was pure because Mormonism, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's not just shortly- your wife for life, it's your wife for forever. Exactly. Well, one of the many wives that you'll have forever. If you tithe the most to the church to get into the highest level of heaven, where you'll have a bunch of spirit wives. Because, yeah, that's a thing, apparently. Weird, but true. Mormonism. America's religion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shortly after Travis and Jody got together, they had been having premarital sex, which is a big no-no for, I'm pretty sure, all Christian religious groups. Yeah. Yeah. So therefore, she wasn't quite wife material, according to one of my sources. What? Well, he doesn't sound like he's husband material. Right? Exactly. That's what I would think. Equality. Uh, (laughs) So if this was the case, however, it takes two to tango. So yeah, right there, you know, and, you know, just take that for what it is. The two ended up breaking up in June of 2007 when Jody found that he had been flirting with other girls on MySpace. They did, however, remain friends, and Jody even moved to Mesa a few months later, where, although technically not together, Jody and Travis started to hook up again. <sighs> even though they weren't together anymore, I think Jody was still holding out hope. But things changed when she showed up to his place unannounced one night and saw Travis kissing another woman. Jody took this well, though, and she learned not to be jealous since the two of them were not together anymore. So she did the rational thing here, and she slashed Travis's tires <laughs> two nights in a row while he was on a date. Two nights in a row. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's not the most stable gal, is she? Travis, Travis, Travis. So Sky Hughes, co-author of the book I previously mentioned and a close friend of Travis's, had some choice words to say after this. Here's a quote. I started seeing things that were just disturbing. I said, Travis, I'm afraid we're going to find you chopped up in her freezer. From very early on, she was completely obsessed with him. And like other friends too said, like she was like weirdly obsessed. Like they would be just like sitting there on the couch and she would like be sucking on his neck and straddling him and doing all this sort of sexual stuff. And they're like, does she even oh know we're in the room at this point? Like, no wonder yeah. he was like, she's a tomcat, but not wife material. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's never good to lead someone on, but she's very, very nutty. Um, so that's pretty chilling to have a friend say that. Yeah. Red flag. Yeah. And even though I haven't, uh, you know, told you yet, 
we all know how this is going to end because this is the show we're, we're listening to. Uh, so, yeah. Now, on June 9th, 2008, Travis's friend and kind of ex, I guess, hadn't heard from him and was she was getting worried. Uh, her name was Mimi. The two had dated for a while, but there weren't any sparks on Mimi's side, so they decided to just be friends instead. They had planned to go to Mexico together the following morning, but like I said, she hadn't heard from him. She calls some of his other friends, and no one had heard from him, so they meet up outside of Travis's house. They go inside and smell something horrible. Mm. They end up finding Travis's body. He's dead in a pool of blood in the shower, just crammed in there. Obviously, the police were called at this point, and when they ask if he had any enemies, the group pretty much unanimously says, Jody. When police checked the house, there was blood all over the place, and when they saw Travis's body, it was brutal. He had been stabbed 27 times in the chest and back, he had been shot in the temple, and he had his throat slit, quote, so deeply that he was almost decapitated, end quote. Oh, shit. Someone was angry. Oh, yes. Now, in my Jody mind, was angry. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, there's no better suspect than Jody. Stabbed, throat slit, and shot. That's beyond Hulk-level rage right there. Mm-hmm. The washing machine in his home had some towels and sheets with some bleach and had been run recently, which is, you know, normal. But if you remember back to my one story, sometimes washing machines can hold a few secrets of their own, and this is one of those times. Wrapped inside the sheets was a digital camera. (gasps) The Uh camera, when analyzed by forensics, was found to contain photos from June 4th, and the pictures were of Travis and Jody. Police also found brown hair that didn't belong to Travis and a bloody palm print from a wall. Police called Jody and asked if they can speak to her about Travis's death, and she's all, Oh no, my beloved Travis, how dare someone? I'll try to help, but I don't know how. I haven't been in Mesa since April. (laughs) True, Jody had been living in California again with her grandparents, but police already knew that she was in Mesa on June 4th since they had the time-stamped digital photos. Mm-hmm. Police played along, though, asking if Jody could come down to the station and, you know, talk and be fingerprinted so they could just, you know, scratch her off that su- list of suspects. She agrees like a dumbass, and her prints are a match. Shocked, neither is anyone involved other than possibly Jody. She's arrested and later indicted by a grand jury on one count of first-degree murder. So she's arrested and later indicted by a grand jury on one count of first-degree murder, and she acts super weird while being interrogated. You know how they leave you alone for a while to stew in the interrogation room? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Jody decided to do some crazy stuff in there, uh, like when she was alone, like digging through the trash can... And singing to herself, and even a few handstands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, J- Jody, you okay there, Jody? Like what just is a lot of nervous on? energy. I have a lot of nervous energy. <laughs> Apparently, they end up showing her the pictures they have, and she's still saying she wasn't there. By the way, 
Okay. Yeah. They're like, dude, we have pictures, their timestamp. She's like, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. I don't know what, what you're talking about. But sometime the next day, Jody decides to come clean about everything, or she decides to create an elaborate lie to get out of it. She tells the police she was ashamed to come forward with this information, but she was with Travis that night, and that's when two masked men broke in and started stabbing Travis. Let me guess they were black, too. Uh, She didn't say that, thank God, but, (laughs) you know. One of them had a gun and held it to her head, but the gun jammed and she ran away, leaving Travis behind. Her beloved Trav. Yes, sure, Jody. We believe you, don't worry. She went to trial in 2013 and changed her story yet again. This time, she did kill Travis, but it was self-defense. She swears. What? Yes, self-fucking-defense. So she said that she was in fear for her life from Travis, who was abusive and forced her to have sex with him, and he would jerk off to photos of children. What? Yes. They showed the pictures from the camera in court to the jury. A lot of which were naked photos of Jody, so I don't actually know whose case that helped, to be honest there. <laughs> but yes, this is what I was mentioning about her photos becoming quite famous. Indeed, they did. The prosecutor was talking and actually like picked up the camera at one point and smashed it to the ground for dramatic effect, because why not? The judge didn't like it, and, you know, since he kind of destroyed some evidence, uh, but I'm sure the jury ate it up. Of course. Jody's defense fell kind of flat in court because there was so much evidence that pointed to the fact that this was not self-defense, but premeditated first-degree murder. First off, I don't think you would shoot, stab, and slit the throat, especially that violently, in self-defense. One, but not all three. Also, right before the murder, Jody altered her appearance. She had always been blonde before, but right before the murder, she dyed her hair brown. Flimsy, I know, but stay with me because there is a lot more. Okay, I'm with you. Jody rented a car miles away from the town in California where she lived with her grandparents, even though there's other services right there. And then she bought three gas cans so she wouldn't have to stop for gas and get caught on camera. And the gun that was used? It was the same caliber as the gun which disappeared after the burglary of Jody's grandparents' house in May of 2008. Maybe it was those masked men. Interesting. The same masked men. What, yes. a, what, a, what a coincidence. That's crazy. Exactly. Because either that or Jody robbed her own grandparents. Wow. I can't picture somebody as upstanding as Jody doing that. Exactly. No, she's a good person. And this was self-defense. Besides the nude photos of Jody on display, this case also got salacious with a phone recording between Travis and Jody that was played where you hear them having, quote, loud and lurid phone sex okay i don't know why that had to be played for the jury but i kind of want to hear this tape just to you know (laughs) know um when asked about what happened to her that made her kill travis since you know we're still playing this self-defense angle for all it's worth jody tells the story about how travis slammed her to the ground for dropping his camera And then she accidentally shot him with his own gun. So I guess maybe Travis now burglarized her grandparents. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, she then gets in her rental car, drives barefoot through the desert, where she washes her bloodstained hands with some bottled water from the trunk. As one does. Yeah. 
She also seemed to be a little bitchy on the stand during cross, where she would correct the prosecutor on his grammar. Oh my god. I mean, I'd be tempted to do the same, but still. I hope she corrected him correctly, though, because it would be even more amazing if it was like, uh, I think you mean whom? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yet another bit of court scandal. There was this psych eval done by the defense whose experts said Jody suffered from PTSD and amnesia. And during cross-examination, the prosecutor tore that doctor apart and even alluded to an affair the good doctor may or may not have been having with Jody. <gasps> Ooh, pulling out all the stops, Miss Jody is. Oh, yes. There was also a lot of prosecutorial misconduct claims during this trial because it was televised and the prosecutor, Juan Martinez, seemed to love the camera. Like I mentioned earlier, he had smashed that digital camera to the ground for effect, and people said they saw him signing autographs outside the courthouse. They also had to dismiss a juror for making prejudicial comments in front of other jurors. They motioned for a mistrial at one point, which was denied, and they even had to take a brief hiatus because things just got so crazy. Two days after Juror 5 was dismissed, she came back to the courtroom to watch because apparently she loved the attention that she had been getting. Okay, well, that's also cuckoo pants. Oh, yeah. And this thing was just like a media circus from like start to finish. Two other jurors were also dismissed, one due to illness and another because he told the court he was arrested for DUI. <laughs> On May 8th, 2013, about five months after the trial began, Jody Arias was convicted of first-degree premeditated murder, but when sentencing came around, the jury wasn't sure what to do about the death penalty, and this resulted in a hung jury, and they had to do a sentencing retrial. Wow. Yeah, this really put a damper on things because this case was so well-known, and more than 300 jurors were dismissed because they couldn't be objective. And knew too much about the case. Yeah, it especially took, one that's like all over the media. Like, how do you, yeah, that's yeah, crazy. How do you do that? Exactly. And it took a month for jury selection because of this, which is like unheard of. <laughs> Yet again, in March of 2015, there's a second hung jury when it came to sentencing. And the death penalty was just then removed from the table because this was obviously never going to end. There's so much more crazy shit with this trial, but I just wanted to give the abridged version, which still went on for a long time. So that's the guys... abridged version. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys want to do your own research into this trial, go for it. There's some weird Snow White shit and stuff about child pornography, which was never on Travis's laptop to begin with that the defense said there was a ton of. It's, it's all just completely bonkers. Wow. Anyway. Since April 13th, 2015, Jody has been serving life in prison without parole. And that is my crazy story for this week. What do you it's, think, Nicole? It certainly was crazy. It's interesting because when you first started telling the story, I was like, oh, okay, what's this going to be about? And then even I, who does not live in Arizona, who doesn't follow like crime news that closely when it becomes like trial stage. Uh, was familiar with with her name like that like yeah. Jody Arias sounds like familiar I'm like okay okay so that just shocks me or I should say I guess it doesn't shock me in the fact that they struggle so much to find like a sentencing jury because it's like, yeah so well known 
it's very well known. And like, yeah, when I was researching it too, I'm like, I think I might remember this. Like, it was one of those. But I just think that she's completely nuts with this story of self. Well, first of all, the the two masked people coming in and just doing all of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then the self defense thing, where she shot him with his own gun and then you know ran off to wash the blood off her hands. Then if you shot him accidentally with his own gun, then how did all the stab marks get into him? And, you know, how about like, you know, the decapitation nearly happening? How did that all occur? How did he get shoved in his shower? Why was the camera that you dropped not damaged at all and in the washer and dryer? Yeah, I just, I feel like if we were to play a very macabre game of suspect bingo excuses where you would just kind of knock them off i feel like jody hit all of them for the oh most she part. scored bingo by far <laughs> yes several times over she got four corners she got diagonals she got up and down she got all of them girl she did not even need that free space okay no she did not <laughs> and now that she's in prison like all the people that have been like cellmates with her and you know stuff they're all like she's completely manipulative she's a huge flirt and she's a psychopath. I mean, it truly does sound like it. Like she kind of reached like a breaking point and was just like, nope, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to get. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that everyone enjoyed my story. Oh, I forgot to read my sources. So I will do that. Uh, My sources were Wikipedia, medium.com, abcnews.go.com, azcentral.com, the book Our Friend Travis, The Travis Alexander Story by Chris and Sky Hughes, and foxnews.com. Well, thank you for that story, Eden. Uh, I guess we'll take a short break and come back with your strange news story of the week, and then I can dive into my spooky story for this first part of Arizona. Can't wait to hear it. We'll be back soon. And we're back. We're back. I'm excited for your new story. Yes. And this is one that Nicole actually sent to me herself that I haven't read yet. Oh, you're going to love it. (laughs) That I was really excited about. So here we go. It comes from New York Daily News, and it is. Florida man calls 911 for meth quality check. It doesn't end well for him. Really, (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) It was a humanitarian gesture gone wrong, depending upon whom you ask. A Florida man called 911 to ask for a quality control check on the meth he had just bought, saying he wanted to protect others from buying the fake product. And fake was in quotes. Police obliged, coming to the door and testing the meth, which was legit, and then arresting him. (laughs) The call came in to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office, At about 7 p.m. on Thursday, the department said in a statement. Upon arrival, deputies met with Thomas Eugene Colucci, police said. Colucci told deputies he had recently purchased methamphetamine from a man he met in a local bar, and after having used a bit of it, believed it was actually bath salts. Colucci went on to tell deputies he was an experienced drug user, having used (laughs) methamphetamine in the past, and knew what it should feel like. Oh my god, dude, really? <laughs> yep, <Yeah>, really. <laughs> <laughs> he brought out the suspect products, 
two small baggies containing a white crystalline substance and handed them over, explaining that the substance had not provided the sensation he'd been expecting. Worried that other people might buy the fake methamphetamine from the same person and determined to protect fellow contraband-buying humans, Colucci wanted the meth tested and its seller held accountable for any (laughs) irregularities. Colucci wanted deputies to, quote, put the person in trouble for selling dangerous drugs. However, he was unable to provide a name or any contact info for this individual, police said. As requested, a deputy performed a field test on a sample of the white crystal-like substance from each of the baggies. The substance from both baggies tested positive for methamphetamine. Colucci, 41, was charged with possession of methamphetamine and two counts of possessing drug paraphernalia. As he was being settled into the back of a patrol car, Colucci complained of chest pains. So he was first brought to a local hospital and then, when cleared by a physician, taken to the Hernando County Detention Center. Police eagerly broadcast their slate of illicit drug services to the wider community. If you or someone you know have doubts about the authenticity of any illegal narcotics you have on hand or have obtained from another person, the Hernando County Sheriff's Office is pleased to provide this service free of charge, the cops said. (laughs) Wow. Oh, Florida. Oh, Florida. Wow. Wow. A state that never ceases to amaze with its news. I know. It's one of the better Florida Man stories I've read in quite a while. Oh, yeah. That was great. And it reminds me of this guy, uh, I think it was like Penn State University, years and years and years ago, um, who apparently it was like he had his marijuana stolen from his dorm room and he called the police. <laughs> and they did arrest the person who stole it from him, but they also arrested him for you know possession of marijuana. Oh, so. Goodness. Yeah, people who don't understand how illegal things work are always funny. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like that lady on Cops. Oh, man. The only Cops episode I really paid attention to where the lady bought like crack from someone. She's like, I went to buy crack from this lady, but she said it was plaster. But I think it's plaster. And then they talk to the lady. She's like, I don't sell drugs. I'm a prostitute, but I don't sell drugs. (laughs) Oh, my God. People shut up. Like, and this is why it's important to have Miranda rights where you can remain silent. Fun if t- they would ever fucking use it. <laughs> Fun tie-in, Miranda rights actually grew out of a 1968 court case from Arizona. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Would you just pull that off the top of your head? I was reading some fun facts earlier. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yep. Not no, quite no. as impressive, but still impressive. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. That was a good tie-in. So, Nicole, you have a strange and unusual tale for us today i do have a strange and unusual tale for you eden let me dive in so today we're heading to pinal county in central in the central part of arizona pinal county is included in the phoenix metro area and was founded in 1875 the town of florence is the county seat about 462,000 people live within the county. Uh, The county is quite large. It's almost, it's over 5,000 square miles. The largest communities in Pinal are Santan Valley with 100,000 residents and Miracopa, a city of 60,000 people. 
Several highways like Interstate 8 and 10 run through the county, as well as several mountain ranges, including the Superstition Mountains. The weather in Pinal County is your typical hot desert Arizona low country climate with warm winters. The average in January is 66 degrees and pretty brutal summers. The average temperature in July is 102 degrees. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did hear of the Superstition Mountains earlier uh, when doing my research for my story. And I just I love that name. I know it's super cool, right? During the 20th century, Pinal was very much a bellwether county in U.S. presidential elections, which is kind of neat. Having picked the winning candidate in every election between Arizona's statehood in 1912 and 2004, with only one exception. Wow. Yeah, in 1968, they voted for Hubert Humphrey, who actually lost the overall election to Richard M. Nixon. I remember learning about him. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that name, Hubert Humphrey, I will never forget that name. (laughs) You're like, is that real? Yeah, I just enjoy it. I just imagined him being a very, very large, bald man for some reason. I don't know what he looks like, but (laughs) Hubert Humphrey, that's just what it sounds like. And probably a hairy back, too. (laughs) Between 2000 and 2010, Pinal County was the second fastest growing county in the U.S., One of the big draws to this area of the Phoenix metro region is the natural beauty. Pinal County is home to six nationally protected areas like Tonto National Forest and the Grand Casa Ruins National Monument, as well as several state parks, including our stop for today. Located in northwestern Pinal County on the Apache Trail, also known as State Route 88, north of Apache Junction, is a 320-acre state park with trails for hiking that lead into the Tonto National Forest and the Superstition Mountains. Many visitors come to the park as their first stop in a quest to find a fabled source of riches in the unforgiving Superstition Mountains. Welcome to Lost Dutchman State Park. Lost Dutchman, okay. Mm -hmm. The park is named after the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine, which many people believe is located near Apache Junction. There have been many stories about how to find the mine, and each year people search for it. Some, if actually many people, have died in the search for the fabled mine, while others have experienced some very strange and dangerous occurrences that have scared them off the hunt for treasure permanently. The Lost Dutchman Mine is probably one of the most famous lost treasures in history, and while its exact location is unknown, many tales state that the Superstition Mountain is home to not only the Lost Dutchman Mine, but other rich deposits of gold. Now, the Superstition Mountains have been inhabited by various indigenous peoples for centuries, but it's primarily associated with the Apache, who consider the mountain range to be sacred ground. According to Apache beliefs, the mountain range is home to their tribal thunder god. In 1540, friend of the podcast Francisco Vasquez de Coronado and his expedition arrived in the area. I know that, dude. Yeah, if you listen to our Oklahoma episode, mm-hmm. you'll remember a little bit about Coronado from my story about the hidden portal in Beaver Dunes Park. Uh, as a refresher, let me remind you who Coronado was. He was a conquistador who led an expedition from Mexico through the southwestern United States all the way into modern day. Kansas between 1540 and 1542. 
He was looking for the fabled cities of Cibola, a.k.a. the Seven Cities of Gold. So he was definitely interested when he heard that there were rumors of gold in the Superstition Mountains, in the area that the Apache he encountered called, quote, the Devil's Playground. Catchy name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally someplace I want to go look for gold. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Coronado was pretty much out of luck when it came to securing an Apache guide to lead them into the mountains. The Apaches straight up refused to help him because not only was it their thunder god's home turf, but all of their legends and stories warned that if you trespassed on that sacred ground, you would suffer his wrath and fall victim to tremendous suffering and horrible death. Oh, just the kind of place I want to go. Thank you. Exactly. That did not deter Coronado because why would it? They're just Native Americans. So he decides to venture with his expedition into the Superstition Mountains without a guide. As they begin to explore the mountain range, his men start disappearing, only to be found a few days or hours later with their head cut off and their bodies pretty severely mutilated. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after that happened a couple times, his other remaining men refused to continue on this quest through the Superstition Mountains, and Coronado reluctantly agreed to move on, and the expedition continued into other regions of modern-day Arizona. He might be, as Nicole put it, a friend of the podcast. Like, we know him personally and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, He's but... a little bit of a jerk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Just, he should have listened. And he also should have had a V8, but, you know. <laughs> Over the next few centuries, rumors and various stories about this hidden hidden gold and the Apache sacred ground in the Superstition Mountains continued. There's all kinds of stories you can find. A lot of them are just legends that you can't really substantiate using any kind of historical records. Um, some of them are really interesting, though. There's some about the members of the Peralta family who found a hidden mine that they would use for centuries until they were viciously attacked by the Apaches. There's another story about a U.S. Army doctor after the Civil War who would treat the local Apache tribes, and as a way to repay him for his kindness, the Apache elders offered to allow him to take as much gold as he could carry from their sacred space, as long as he agreed to be blindfolded first and to never return. But, like I said, those stories really can't be substantiated through the historical record. However, the tale about the most famous discovery of gold in the Superstition Mountains can be. And that is the tale of the Lost Dutchman Mine. Side note, the Dutchman is actually a German guy, not a Dutch dude, because the word for German in German is Deutsch, Deutsch. which sounds like Mm -hmm. Dutch in English. So just like the Pennsylvania Dutch speakers aren't actually speaking Dutch, they're speaking German. Yes, they are speaking a low dialect of German. Exactly. Any Hooters, moving on. There's two main versions of the Lost Dutchman mine story. The first one's pretty straightforward. In the 1870s or 1880s, a prospector named Jacob Waltz stumbles upon a very rich deposit of gold in the Superstition Mountains. Over the next decade or so, he extracts gold from the mine and becomes a very wealthy man. But in order to protect his source of wealth, he keeps the location of the mine a secret, even going so far as to camouflage the mine's entrance so that it blends in with the surrounding mountainside. Then Waltz, who at this point is an old man, falls gravely ill. He's taken in by a friend, a woman named Julia Thomas, who attempts to nurse him back to health. Unfortunately, she can't save Waltz, and he dies. However, on his deathbed, he tells Julia all about the hidden mine and provides a verbal map using landmarks and walking distances on how to find it. 
Julia then teams up with some local miners in an attempt to find the mine. However, they're unsuccessful. Eventually, to recoup their losses, Julia and her partner start selling maps that reportedly show how to get to the mine. And the mad treasure hunt descends upon the Superstition Mountains, and it's been going on ever since. The second version of the story ends the same way, with Julia Thomas and her partners failing to find the map and then selling a bunch of fake maps to the mine they couldn't find. (laughs) But the discovery of the mine itself is a lot more dramatic and super bloody. So, in version two, Jacob Waltz has this Apache mistress who shows them the location of the mine. When her tribe finds out that they've started taking gold from the sacred site, they're both attacked and captured. His mistress has her tongue got out for telling, t- telling the location of the mine. Losing her tongue is seen as the ultimate punishment for her betrayal. However, somehow, Jacob Waltz manages to escape. Years later, he teams up with another man, actually another Jacob, a guy named Jacob Weiser, to return uh, to the here's gold mine. Where our stories get confusing. Yay. Mm-hmm. Well, the pair are apparently successful in locating the mine again because they show up in Phoenix a few months later with a ton of gold and they use it to replenish their supplies before heading back into the Superstition Mountains. However, the last time anyone sees Jacob Weiser is when they go to resupply in Phoenix. He disappears after this, although there are lots of rumors that he was possibly killed by Apaches, but more likely murdered by Jacob Waltz. While I couldn't really confirm any details about the second story, like confirming if Jacob Weiser was even a real person, or any of the precursor stories about the Peralta family or the army doctor, the historic record does support that the eponymous Dutchman Jacob Waltz was a real person who was actually German who immigrated to America in the mid-19th century and ventured out west to try his hand at farming and prospecting. A real live German? Wow. I know the rarity. They do exist. They walk and talk and everything. They say Deutsch a lot, though. It's weird. Very weird. (laughs) So Jacob Waltz was probably born in Wartenberg in 1810. Some sources say 1808. He appears in legal records in 1848 in the U.S. And then even pops up in Arizona land records from the 1860s and 70s. He owned about 160 acres outside of Phoenix. He also then appears in the records of a catastrophic flood that occurred in the Phoenix area in 1891. Waltz's farm was devastated during the flooding, and he actually caught pneumonia. He died on October 25th, 1891, after being nursed by a friend who happened to be named, you guessed it, Julia Thomas. You can actually find Jacob's Wal- Jacob Waltz's grave on Find a Grave. He's buried in the Pioneer and Military Cemetery in Phoenix, which is kind of cool. But okay. was this Jacob Waltz the same man who secretly mined gold in the Superstition Mountains? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? The world may never know, just like Tootsie Pops. Exactly. There are records of a Jacob Waltzer, which is a very similar German last name, who sold $250,000 worth of gold to the U.S. Mint in the 1880s from the Southwest, and several newspaper stories from the 1890s about Julia Thomas and her partners who were trying to find the claim also corroborate that Jacob Waltz was able to find gold in the mountains. Okay, so we've got some truth to the story here, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. 
Either way, the story of an epic treasure hunt and the idea of a huge resource of gold just waiting to be found in the Superstition Mountains seems way too tempting to deter anybody from venturing after it, even despite all the superstition around it. So for the last hundred years, people have been venturing into the Superstition Mountains, which in and of itself is a pretty dangerous place. It's very harsh in the summertime, and as a result, many people turn up dead in their quest for gold. Some of the amateurs, explorers, and notable deaths that I came across include Adolf Ruth, who disappeared in 1931 after finding a supposed map to the Lost Dutchman mine. Six oh, months. One of those fake ones that were being sold. I know. Who knows? There's so many. There's even like these fake stones that will like lead you to a gold resource in the Superstition Mountains, too. There's all kinds of crazy like maps about this mine. Oh, okay. So six months after Ruth ventures into the mountains, they find his skull, and just a skull, with two bullet holes in it. A short while later, else? well, a, short, a couple months later, they did find his original campsite, and they found his personal effects, as well as some additional remains of his body. Uh, yeah, among his personal effects was a pistol which hadn't been fired, as well as a checkbook that contained a note written by Ruth, where he says he discovered the mine and give very detailed directions. The supposed map he had, though, was not found. Huh, okay. Did anyone, like, try to repeat, like, his steps then, since you said he gave specific directions? As a matter of fact, someone did. In the 1940s, a man named James A. Creevy ventured into the superstitions following the description that Ruth left behind. He, unfortunately, also disappeared, and his headless remains were found at some point in the mid-1940s. Oh my god, don't don't follow his directions. You will be decapitated. I know, they're bad, they're bad. Um, and these disappearances kind of continue over the years. So all the way up into the current 21st century, in November or early December of 2009, Denver resident Jesse Kappen went missing in the Tito, Tito National Forest. His campsite and his car were found abandoned. Everyone that knew Jesse knew that he was kind of obsessed with finding the Lost Dutchman mine for the past couple of years, and this was one of many trips he had made to this area of Arizona. They did eventually find his body several years later, in November of 2012, and sadly, he had fallen and become wedged in a crevice. I was wedged in a crevice once. <laughs> it was actually just like the space between like my parents' bed and their bedroom and the wall. And I accidentally fell in and like my legs were like up in the air and my torso was up in the air and my butt was all down in the crevice and I couldn't get out. I actually needed to be pulled out. It was not fun. Although this seems, you know, a lot scarier. Well, that that does sound a little bit frustrating of, of a story. I thought that was going to be a way dirtier story than it was when you said no, I was no, not those crevice. kind of crevices. <laughs> <laughs> I was not lucky enough for that. No, instead <laughs> I was stuck between a bed and a wall. <laughs> At least the search party, a.k.a. your parents, found you in time. Yes, and I was not decapitated. That's true. Uh, in 2010, uh, Utah hikers Curtis Merworth, Ardeen Charles, and Malcolm Meeks went missing in the Superstition Mountains while they were looking for the mine. Uh, Merworth had become lost in the same area in 2009 and required a rescue. Lord knows why he went back. But yeah, right. he brought his buddies with them. And they went out in July, and when no one heard for them, and no one heard for them, and they didn't return, turn up again. 
they were pretty much presumed dead because it was a very hot summer. But was it a cruel summer? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I think it probably was. We'll ask Bananarama. We'll ask Bananarama. I'm sure they'll give us the, the DL. The Maricopa County Sheriff's Department just presumed that these guys had died out there. And they were able to confirm that when in January of the next year, they found three sets of remains that are probably the three Utah hikers who got lost. So if that wasn't horrible enough, there's even more chilling tales about those who are lucky enough to survive their adventure in the Superstition Mountains. So hikers have reported really weird things happening with the landscape. Uh, they say that sometimes rocks will come rolling down the mountainside out of nowhere as if they were pushed. But when they look at the ridge where the rocks come from, they can see no one there. Hmm. In fact, in 1927, a boy from New Jersey who was hiking with his family had his legs crushed in one of these mysterious falling boulder incidents. Oh, man. Uh, there are stories of madness suddenly striking treasure hunters. You're out there. It's hot. You're lost. I can understand how madness could possibly set in. Oh, yeah. Dehydration mm -hmm. can do some weird things. There were several incidents of uh, partners in a treasure hunting venture turning on each other and shooting or some in, in some other way murdering their partner. One example is in 1965, Stanley Hernandez and Benjamin Friera thought they had actually stumbled upon the mine. But turns out what they had found was a deposit of pyrite, a.k.a. fool's gold. Mm -hmm. And Hernandez, at the thought of sharing the wealth after their long trek through the Superstition Mountains, freaked out and killed his friend. Whether it was a bit of rage or greed, no one quite knows. The, their wealth of pyrite. Yes, over their wealth of pyrite. Worth. Like, nothing. Yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> uh, mysterious violence in the Superstition Mountains was also reported by Barry Storm. According to Storm's 1945 book, Thunder God's Gold, great title, he narrowly escaped an encounter with a sniper as he hiked through the Superstition Mountains. A near sniper? Yeah, a sniper. He said that he was in this part of the Superstition Mountains near a landmark called weaver's needle which is where a lot of the um, maps will lead people to it's a very common uh landmark that pops up as part of the lost dutchman mine folklore and basically he was hiking through there and someone just started shooting at him he managed to take cover and then quickly backtracked and went back into town but yeah very very scary the idea that you're just out there enjoying nature maybe looking for treasure and all of a sudden shots ring out damn yeah i don't Wow. Yeah. So people familiar with the quest for the Lost Dutchman's Mine speculate that the treasure might still be protected by those loyal to the Apache Thunder God. There's been multiple reports of strange lights, war cries, and even sightings of, of spectral Apaches chasing hikers out of the mountains. Huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Still others are sure that the Thunder God's curse is real. There's a litany of tragic occurrences in the Superstition Mountains, especially near Weaver's Needle, like I mentioned, that kind of reads like a timeline of, the, of misfortune and death. Every couple years since the 1930s, people have gone into the Superstition Mountains looking for the Lost Dutchman's Mine, only to die, either through misadventure, like accidental falls or exposure, or through violence. When you look at the timeline of incidents, it's kind of like reading a murder timeline where there's at least one murder every couple of years 
often either without cause or with the murderer being unknown. And some of those murders are, you know, just people in their car in, in the state park and they are just murdered and no one knows why. So, oh my God. yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's all this violence that kind of centers around this, this area of the Superstition Mountains. And then there's the folks who seem to have the curse follow them once they leave the mountains. Several, oh, no. Yes. It is not uncommon um, for people who venture into the, the Superstition Mountains looking for the Lost Dutchman Mine to return to civilization and perish shortly afterwards from various illnesses. I was reading about... A guy who was in the mountains thought he found the mines, ventured back, and then died shortly afterwards from a from a perforated ulcer. There's lots of other illnesses that will strike people, often illnesses that are kind of related to exposure, but not necessarily. Like one guy was diagnosed with cancer after he returned from the mountains, after even though he was previously like tested and healthy. So just lots of weirdness around this area of Arizona. Wow. And to top it all off, lots of locals speculate that all of these deaths of hikers and these misfortunate or unfortunate treasure seekers have really fueled a lot of reports of ghostly activity and spooky sightings. Like I said, people who venture into Lost Dutchman State Park especially will see things like strange lights and hear noises coming from the mountains. And all in all, it tends to be a pretty spooky place, especially after dark. There seems to be a lot of ghost lights in mm-hmm. like this area like this part of the country yeah i think the thing that creeped me out the most is the idea that you're in this park and you see a ghost light and then you hear like what could only be described as like a war cry and you're like oh shit we gotta go just like no no thank you yes yes hard pass so even that's my take on it <laughs> do you <laughs> think you would want to venture into the to the superstition mountains on the quest for the lost dutchman mine two words hell no <laughs> No, not going to do it. My head is fine on my neck. I don't want it off my neck. Um, yeah, that's fucked up. I I don't know if it's like haunted or like a curse or just a bunch of crazy. But either way that you spin that, I, I'm not going anywhere near it. No, thank you. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And and just like your story, there's a lot more when it comes to the folks, the misfortune that have happened to folks in the mountains and also just some of the wild tales. Um, I remember first learning about the Lost Dutchman mine in an episode of like Unsolved Mysteries, like back in like the early 90s. And that was okay, about yeah. like a local sheriff who like spent his life trying to find it. So there's all kinds of crazy tales about people who have spent decades looking for this gold. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I need money. I need money bad, but I don't know that I need it so bad that I'm willing to die for it. Yeah. That defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, my sources for this story include Wikipedia, Unsolved Mysteries, Legends of America, PhoenixGhost.com, Discovery.com, DesertUSA.com, and Mental Floss. Thank you for that, Nicole. That was definitely weird and, <laughs> yeah, terrifying. Thank you and then i feel like i've done a good job yes you did and i guess that is our show for this week if you guys would like to reach out to us you can always send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com you can stop by and visit us on social media we are roadside horror show on facebook and instagram and roadside horror on twitter 
You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. As always, we would like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rex Designs for our wonderful logo. Until next time, Roadsters. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.